Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In 2008, Dr. G. Wayne Clough became the 12th Secretary of the Smithsonian. The Douglas, Georgia native was the first person born in the American South to hold that position. When he retired in 2014, Clough decided to write about his birthplace in South Georgia. At the same time, he dived into the Smithsonian collections, searching for artifacts from the region. He shares what he found in his new book, Things New and Strange, a Southerner's Journey Through the Smithsonian Collections, and joins me now in the studio. Welcome. Thank you, Virginia. You were born in Douglas, Georgia. That's the seat of Coffee County in the southeastern part of the state, closer to Jacksonville, Florida, really, than to Atlanta. What was it like to be a kid there in the 40s and 50s? Well, it was a wonderful opportunity for me as a child because I was kind of a wild child, and my mother and father owned a business, and they both worked. And so I was an original latchkey kid, and I loved being outside. I but basically, as soon as I could, I got rid of my shoes. I'd go to Sunday school, I'd put shoes on. But other than that, maybe playing baseball, I would, I would put on shoes. I would never wore shoes. So, so I spent a lot of time out of doors, and the outdoors were so accessible. I mean, yeah, I could walk or get on my bike and be in a pine woods forest or be in a swamp or, or something like that. And it was an adventure. We made up, you know, we got all saw ourselves as Tom, Tom, Tom all the folks that you think about from from your Tom Sawyer types, and and so we imagined ourselves doing everything, and we didn't have a television. And, of course, didn't have a computer. It wasn't even invented yet. And so you had lots of time for your imagination to roam, and I really think it helped me become who I am. What was the town like at that time? What did it look like? What, the town? Mm -hmm. It was a small town. It was largely founded because of two crossroads, Peterson and Ward Avenue, and it's still true. And that's where the center of town is located. It was really, uh, it, it was basically founded in about 1855, 1858, somewhere in that range. It was there really to serve the rural community, which was farming. And even when I grew up there, it was really based on the farming community. And, and your, your parents had both grown up on farms in the they north. They grew up on farms in Jeff Davis County, which mm -hmm. is just north of, of Coffee County. And both had big families, naturally, in those days. Mom had nine brothers and sisters. Dad had eight. Uh, but when the, the folks, the farmers, needed something, they would come into town to get it. And particularly things like tobacco, which was the big money crop. They would come in in August and September, and the tobacco would be auctioned off. And they would buy all the things they needed for their kids and go back home, and they would be fixed for the year, if you will. Mm. Well, you became later a geological engineer, one of your best friends, a botanist archaeologist. What do you think it was, was it about growing up in this town that set you on these respective paths? <laughs> well, again, I think being able to—I love to read, first of all. And so, uh, again— didn't have much interference in, in terms of my attention span. Uh, I listened to the radio, the Green Hornet, and all the great shows. But most of the time, again, it was uh, even in the winter you could get out of doors there. And so it was, a, it was just constant learning process and growing process and learning about the nature and all the things that surrounded you. So I came away from that upbringing eventually wanted to be an engineer. The other thing I did as a child, I loved to build things. And I, I like to kind of order people around, it turned out. So <laughs> we would build a hut or we'd build a dam or something like this. And I would 
get the team together and tell them what to get. Uh, and so I had that in me and I also had this love of nature in me. And so those two things came together in geological engineering. Mm. But in those rambles around as a kid when you were young, you found arrowheads frequently, but didn't really know what they were. What, what did you yeah. think? I didn't know. I didn't know what to think. And I just took it for granted. It was one of those things when you were out there, you knew you were going to find arrowheads. I mean, uh, I have a chapter in the book about Jimmy Carter and his family collects projectile points, as you want to use the formal term for it. But I didn't put that together because there were no Native Americans living there. So what did you know about the history of this place where you grew up? Well, (laughs) I think we all have this preconceived notion when you grow up somewhere, you know a lot about it. And it turned out I didn't know very much about it. And I gradually knew that over time as I left and and had my career in other places. And I would go back and I realized there is a lot to this place that I don't know about. And that was really one of the motivations of thing. But I think the thing that was spectacular about the Smithsonian collections is how it taught me mm. so much. And in some ways, unwilling, I went, went into this unwillingness, uh, the unwilling approach to say, I'm going to look at the botany collection today, but I may not find much. Well, in fact, uh, everywhere I looked, there were things in, from botany that were collected in South Georgia. Who knew? So, and, and, and every time I had to learn about them. I mean, who would have thought the first thing I found was a fossil that was basically an arematherium, and I had to learn about that creature. And I had then to understand why that creature was no longer there. Because if you think about our continent versus, let's say, Africa, Africa still has its elephants and its giraffes. South Georgia at one time had Arematheriums and Colombian mammoths, they're not there anymore. So the question becomes, why not? Where did they go? Well, tell us about the arematherium, because this was a huge discovery for you. It was. Uh, first, I didn't know there was such a thing. I'd, I'd seen them before. What is the, it? What can you describe? But I didn't, it didn't register me that they actually could live in South Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first one that was discovered was discovered in Skidaway Island. And it was actually discovered by people who were slaves on a plantation. And during low tide on the island, they would see bones sticking out of the side of the, of the, the bank. And they told the man who owned it about it. And he called these two uh, physicians in uh, Savannah, who he knew were very interested in, in fossils and collections. And so that, that was uh, Screven and Habersham. And they actually were the ones that picked this particular fossil out and brought it back and identified it. And identified as a megatherium, which is another version of this eremotherium, which actually is a South American version. But it is a it is an America's hemispheric-centric specimen. What does it look like? What If you could compare it to an animal now? It's big. Uh, it's bigger maybe even than an elephant. So it's, a, it's a really huge creature. It's a vegetarian, but it had these huge claws, so it could bring the tree back down to it, and it could eat the vegetation. So it's a very unusual creature with large claws, not so much for killing other creatures, but for gathering the fruit and leaves that they ate. So it's identified as a giant sloth? Is that the... That would be it. And that was really the, the way the thing was identified. At that time, people didn't know that species went extinct. And it took a while for folks to figure that out. There was a French scientist, Cuvier, who came up with the idea that things could do it stinking. You could see it in fossils. Thomas Jefferson was the first American to identify one of these creatures based on a fossil that was given to him, a smaller version of that sloth. When he was vice president of the United States, he wrote a, he wrote a paper about it. And uh, it was called something of 
a sloth of a clawed kind, mm-hmm. uh, and it was eventually named after him. So he attached himself <laughs> to that name, if you will. So, but people didn't know. In fact, he suggested uh, to to when, when folks were going out on on the voyage of discovery, look around. You might see this thing. He thought that it was still. Uh, oh, that it might be still uh, living. That's so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, Lewis and Clark were. were asked to be on the lookout for this thing. Not the least of which of the, uh, a presidential legacy being that of a giant sloth. <laughs> yeah. But this is the only South Georgia fossil of note in the collections at the Smithsonian. But why is it so important? Well, because it was the first of its kind. Uh, the, the first uh, megalotherium have been identified in South America, but there was no such thing in Europe. It was a sensation in Europe because there was no such creature that, was, that you could find in Europe or Asia or Africa. So that was got everyone's attention. And th- this was the first one in North America. And it turned out to be a slightly different species than the one found in South America. So, And it was a forerunner to a series of discoveries that would come, some of those in South Georgia, where when they were trying to uh, dig a canal between Brunswick and Darien to create uh, a port there, uh, they found Colombian mammoths and identified the Colombian mammoth as being in that same area. And the Colombian mammoth was a giant creature in, unto itself. And that was the first time we, uh, in America they identified that. They found it other places as well. But the first ones were found in South Georgia. My guest is Wayne Clough. He's former secretary of the Smithsonian and president emeritus of Georgia Tech. We're talking about his life, his work, and his new memoir, Things New and Strange. And I want to get to that because, first of all, you're talking about what you did to to expand the sense of your life and world in South Georgia by going through the collections at the Smithsonian. But first, how you got to be the head of the Smithsonian, which you said is not a job that you apply for. How'd you get it? (laughs) Well, I was at a a good point in my life. I had enjoyed being president of my alma mater, Georgia Tech, but I was running into my 13th year and I announced that I was going to retire. And so folks who knew me and thought I might be able to do something else with the rest of my life started contacting me. And it turned out, as life is serendipitous, that a very good friend of mine, Walter Massey, who had been president of Morehouse, who was all, had also been head of the National Science Foundation, was on the Board of Regents. He was just retiring from the Board of Regents of the Smithsonian. And he told his friends on the Board of Regents they were looking for a new person and a different kind of person because the last secretary had had some problem. He said, I think I know a person who can do this. And I don't think they believed him (laughs) in the beginning, Uh, but I also had a very good friend, Chuck uh, Vest, who was president of MIT, and one of his close friends also was on the board of regents. So between those two guys, they managed to make the case that I might be someone who could do this. What qualified you for this job? <laughs> well, I guess you got to be a little bit of a uh, you, you 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 have to be willing to give a lot for for starters because it's a full time job in the biggest sense. Uh, it's it's almost a twenty four hour job because nineteen museums and nine research centers, activities in one hundred and forty countries, national zoo. Uh, you know, aerospace, uh, you, you name it, it's all there. So you need someone with a, a sort of a broad thinker, and all the reading I've done, I think, was was very helpful for me there. But in addition, uh, I love the place. I had been to Washington many times as part of my work with Georgia Tech, and I always went to the Smithsonian. So I really believed it was a wonderfully special place. It, uh, the, it it's, it's only it's unique in the world, mm. and that if they thought I could do something for them, I was going to do my very best to do it. I... Loved reading about your first task as head of Smithsonian. You had to be 
blessed by Buddhist monks. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Smithsonian does so many things. It's actually remarkable. And of course, when I got there, I didn't know all these things either. I was learning on the go. But one of the things to do is have a folk life festival, and it's on the National Mall. It's been curtailed a little bit because of construction lately. But that particular, and they usually feature a country. And in this particular case, it was Bhutan. And so a beautiful country, you know, in, in, in the Himalayas. And they had Buddhist monks come over. They actually built a Buddhist temple, a, a, you know, a small replica of a Buddhist temple, a very beautiful thing for them. So they could go about performing their religious duties. And uh, so they decided that uh, for me, they would bless me. And I, th I think that was my first thing that I had to do at the Smithsonian. It was wonderful to be blessed. I thought, if it's like this every day, I'm going to have fun. <laughs> what, I'm trying to understand what the head of the Smithsonian actually does on a daily basis. I mean, as you said, a huge job. 154 million artifacts yep. in, in there. So what do you do? It's really a CEO-type job uh, because all the directors of the museums report to you, all the directors of the research centers report to you. Uh, you have to also work with Congress because a significant amount of the money comes from Congress. You have to work with boards. There are 30 boards there. There's a board of regents, which is the governing board, and John Roberts, the chief justice, is the chancellor of the Smithsonian. So I reported to him, mm -hmm. and I had to keep him informed uh, frequently. He's very conscientious about his work at the Smithsonian. I had no idea. <laughs> well, it was a set-up uh, governance that was set up as a compromise to get the money, get Congress to accept the money from Mr. Smithson was odd that that money was there and they wouldn't accept it. But the idea was to set up a board that had all three branches of government re represented. Mm -hmm. So the Supreme Court is represented by the Chief Justice. The Vice President of the United States is the second in command. And then you have three members of the Senate, three members of the House, and nine private citizens. Wow. Well, Wayne, you, and were you have the, to raise money. I, I of course, a lot of a, money. That's a big part of that. It's just like a university president. Well, and it's free. I mean, that is one of the amazing things. I remember going to yep. Washington as a kid and going yep. to the Smithsonian Museums. We just made days and days and yep. days of trips out of it. I just felt like if you grew up in Washington, you're so lucky. These are the museums in your backyard. You are extremely lucky. I, I remember David Rubenstein, who's head of Carlisle Investments, and he's on the board of Regents and been very generous with. Uh, his funds and his time because he loves American history and he grew up in Baltimore and his parents came from were Jewish uh, refugees and, and came from Russia and they didn't even go to high school. And he said, my education was the library and the Smithsonian. It is a wonderful, wonderful experience for young people who can access it. And of course, one of my pushes when I was there was to get more and more of the material digitized. So as I always used to tell people, did the kids in Douglas, Georgia get any of this? Yeah. And to remind them that that's really the job of the Smithsonian. Well, you were the first Smithsonian secretary born below the Mason-Dixon line. So did you know that going in, first off? <laughs> no. You didn't? I had no idea. Well, how did that make you feel when you found out? Honored? Intimidated? I, well, it was an honor, yeah. And uh, the fact that you know, I came from a, a modest family background. My folks uh, were so hardworking. They went through the Depression. They had difficulties, financial difficulties in their life. And they saved every penny to see that my, myself and my brother and sister got to go to college. And I really felt I owed something to the country and 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 to you know my to Georgia and, and South Georgia, because I had been given so much. Uh, so it, it it really made to me it, it attached me to the Smithsonian and to its purpose. And and every day I went to work, I thought about that. 
That is Wayne Clough, former secretary of the Smithsonian and president emeritus of Georgia Tech, and Douglas Georgia native. We'll continue our conversation about his new memoir and what he discovered in Things New and Strange after a short break. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott with my guest, Wayne Clough. In 2008, the Douglas Georgia native and then Georgia Tech president became the 12th secretary of the Smithsonian, the first Southerner to run that institution. When Clough retired, he wanted to write a memoir about his childhood in Douglas, but thought that that kind of thing had been done. So he delved into the Smithsonian collections and uncovered surprising bits of South Georgia history along the way. Well, that memoir is now out and it's called Things New and Strange, A Southerner's Journey Through the Smithsonian Collections. Wayne Clough, while you were secretary, you went on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and host Peter Sagal asked you this question. Um, is there anything in the museum that personally embarrasses you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always uh, thought uh, that the puffy shirt uh, from, from the show was... Uh, was one of those things. I said, I wonder why we have that. Wait a minute, I'm sorry. From, from Seinfeld? Sorry. The puffy shirt. Yeah, from Seinfeld. The puffy shirt from Seinfeld. Huh. Yeah, you, that does seem weird. Have you, have, you ever thought of, have you ever thought of removing it when no one is looking? <laughs> well, the word for it is called deaccessioning. Deaccessioning? <laughs> that's what they call it. Deaccessioning? That's when you take something out in the dark of night. <laughs> the puffy shirt from Seinfeld. Well, if anyone has forgotten what the puffy shirt actually is, here's a little scene from Seinfeld about the garment in question. Now that's a great looking shirt. Hi, Captain. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad I ironed it. It's perfect. Look at it. It's fantastic. Kramer, how am I going to wear this? I, I can't wear this. Hey, this looks better than anything you own. You know, in two months' time, everybody's going to be wearing the pirate look. <laughs> Wayne Clough, did you get any hate mail from Seinfeld fans after, <laughs> after that segment? Oh, I got a note from the curators who said that I shouldn't have said that. That comes from the popular culture collection. And they said the puffy shirt is the perfect thing for the popular uh, culture collection. So, well, it does reflect, you know. That and my this... wife loves Seinfeld. We've probably watched that, that particular episode five times. Is there anything else you weren't quite sure about in the Smithsonian <laughs> that was less controversial? Well, I, one thing I did learn was you have to be careful about picking and choosing mm -hmm. the collections because something that looks worthless now can turn out to be very valuable. And uh, you know, a simple example of that was the Smithsonian did this itself at one time. It made a decision about certain collections that were obtained from Native Americans mm -hmm. and decided it had too many things. And it got rid of them. And it turned out they regret that today. They should have kept them. 
Well, I want to ask you more about that because Native Americans are one of the things that you explore in this book because there's a deep history in Georgia, but a lot of mysteries. And there's a new exhibit this year at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian that explores how Native American imagery and mythology has been used to brand and to sell merchandise. So our society now seems a lot more apt to call out that kind of cultural appropriation than in the last few years. And I'm wondering what kind of conversations you all had at the museum about that? Well, the Native American Museum was one of my favorites and because they taught me so much about myself and about what this country stands for and what we did in, uh, in, in that period of history, which wasn't necessarily our best face as a nation. Uh, and to be there with people who were members of tribes and to hear their stories was very powerful. So I traveled to Oklahoma. I, I visited the, the tribal leaders uh, it's also a museum, incidentally, about Native Americans from what, the top of, from the Antarctic to the Arctic, practically. Mm-hmm. So one of the big exhibitions we did was about the Inca and the Inca Road. And I spent a week in Peru. I had to sign a lot of documents because it's very tricky to move artifacts around these days. Uh, and we visited a number of places uh, related to the Inca. And I'm an engineer, and the Inca, I realized that when I spent some time there and thought about it, they were way ahead of what the engineering that I learned as historic engineering. No kidding. Because they built suspension bridges. Uh-huh. Nobody in Europe had ever built the suspension bridge. Uh, they built earthquake-proof buildings. Uh, they were remarkable engineers, and they built a road that's still there. How many of our roads with potholes in them uh, last more than, you know, a couple of years? And the Inca Road is still there. It was just a number. So every, you know, when you when you had a chance to really get into it, you just learn so how much, how little you know. And that's one of the things that brings us back to our Dalton arrowheads or the Dalton yeah. points, as you call them, that you found. What do they reveal about the Native American history in and Paleo Indian, uh, Paleo Indian history here in Georgia? Right. Well, of course, most uh, paleontologists didn't really, or archaeologists didn't, didn't put it together until say the early 1900s about how these different projectile points played a role in evolution, if you will, or development of societies, Native American societies. The Smithsonian was guilty of that because it collected pretty strongly, just asked people to send things in many ways, and they got more than they really uh, needed for, for a while. And they, they got collections of projectile points that ranged from small arrowheads, like the kind that I would find, all the way up to six, seven-inch projectile points. And nobody really thought at that time that those came from different eras. Well, it turned out the big points, and they're called Clovis points, That was the first Clovis point was discovered in New Mexico, near Clovis, New Mexico, in the 30s. But we found them now in South Georgia and in Georgia. But nobody understood that these were probably 10, 12, 13,000 years old. And they were big because the Native Americans at that time had to kill big animals, like the Megalotherium and the Arethmotherium and the Columbia Mammoth. They, didn't, they couldn't kill them with little arrowheads. And so as the bigger animals were gradually eliminated, it went down to Dalton points, which is the next stage. And Dalton points were not nearly as big as Clovis. How big, if you were to describe it? A Dalton it. point might be two, three inches mm-hmm. in, in, in length. But those were killing animals as they got smaller. And eventually, of course, we it, it, as, a, as humans eliminated those animals from South Georgia, or if you will, from our country. And so the ones that are in South Georgia now and have been picked up, how when do they date from, do we know? The points? Yes. Probably anywhere from ten to 13,000 years old. Right. And that relates to when humans first came to this part of the country. So 
what happened to me when I mentioned with the erythmotherium discovery of that fossil, that date then ties back to the date of when humans first got here through Clovis points. So the human and, and, and flora and fauna stories date in my book from the same time. Mm-hmm. And the story really is about how those two interacted over that period of time and how things changed. And, and nature responds, for example, when the big predators are eliminated, you get coyotes, for example, instead of wolves. And so nature responds to the changes that humans induced. So, all right, I, I want to pull out a couple of these threads here because you've talked about Georgia Collection, your past at the Smithsonian. And all of this kind of came together in this project to find hints of Georgia in the Smithsonian Collection. Now, when we think of shaping history, maybe South Georgia doesn't necessarily <laughs> come up in our mind. So how did you even get to this decision to to explore South Georgia through this lens? Well, it wasn't as logical as I would like to make it out to be, because when it began, I was doing more or less some, some, some idea of a memoir. And I thought that memoir might cover the time I lived in South Georgia, about 15 years, or my family's time was 150 or so plus years. And the first fossil I find is 15,000 years old. And so it changed the book entirely, because now I've got to start back 15,000 years ago with the story of a creature I never knew that, existed. That's a long scope. And then I've got to learn about Clovis points and, and how they factor into the other part of the story. So the, 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 the basically the artifacts took over the book. And every time I went into a collection, whether a curator said, come and see this, or I found something myself by looking in digital collection, it was a surprise. And it was a learning experience. And in addition to the artifact itself, it was about the people. Who collected this? And how did this thing get in the Smithsonian? And who took care of it after it got there? And every point in that curve is a story. So we see this, you found this huge fossil. And then the next thing that you're looking at is flora and fauna. And really another interesting Georgia connection at the Smithsonian, the entire bird collection of Joseph Leconte. Who was Leconte? Well, the Smithsonian has 660,000 birds in the collection. And so sure enough, there are some from South Georgia. And part of that story is that the uh, Spencer Baird was uh, basically the, the assistant secretary to Joseph Henry, and he would become the secretary himself. He's an ornithologist. And he was interested in collections writ large. And so he realized the Smithsonian at that time was very small, didn't have any people to collect. And when was this? What time? Yeah, he was a very smart guy. So what he did was he deputized people. He said, if you want to collect for the Smithsonian and you have some background in science, I'm going to make you a deputy. And so about 40 people in Georgia became deputies. So this was like the first crowdsourcing experiment. Yeah, it really was. And they started sending things to them. And so that actually turns out there's a number of things from the collections that I found were from this period. And one of those people were the LeConte brothers. And uh, you have these large rice plantations on the coast of Savannah. That was the first big development before the cotton was developed and all that kind of thing. And so uh, the, the LeConte's bought a rice plantation and those two sons really picked us up and became sons of nature, if you will, and, and began collecting birds and their other bats and a number of other things that ended up in the Smithsonian collection. But at one point in time, Joseph LeConte, who's a younger brother, eventually decided to give it up because he was becoming a, a scientist in a different field, and he just gave his whole bird collection to the Smithsonian, over 100 birds. How do you decide? What is the process for deciding what belongs in the Smithsonian's collection? 
Well, in the early days, they were a little bit less uh, careful about it. <laughs> because whatever people would send them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They didn't really have anything. And so they were busy. He was also doing this in Alaska. So there's a huge catch of materials from of Native Americans and the flora and fauna from places like Alaska, who he, where he felt change was coming. Uh, and, of course, even in Georgia in the 1830s, it was not a very populous state. And so there was still a large chunk of nature here, if you will, as, as it had been. Uh, but today they're much, much more careful because you have 154 million things. But you don't stop collecting. Uh, people always said, why don't you quit? Well, you have, for example, a collection on political elections. Well, we have elections every year. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to collect buttons and paraphernalia and things about it. American history doesn't stop. So you have to keep collecting to keep with American, American history. Uh, we keep learning things about nature. And so we, we have an air and space museum. Well, you keep getting new, different kinds of airplanes. So you've got to keep adding to the collection. But we do it very carefully. We work with other museums. If they have a better collection than we do, we probably won't. And where do you house all of these? Uh, <laughs> well, in big buildings. Yeah. Uh, and what there are some still kept in the museums, but the museums ran out of space a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So there's some huge buildings out in Maryland, primarily, where many of these collections are held. And they're very large uh, facilities, some of them very specialized, some for what we would call fluid collections, that is animals that are kept in the fluid condition, uh, some that focus on Native American history, and they're used mainly for scholars. And in the case of Native Americans, tribes themselves can come out and see their collections and tell us what they think about them. Well, you were secretary of the Smithsonian during the planning phases, groundbreaking, and initial construction of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. This was a huge, it was established in 2003 by an act of Congress, didn't open until 2016, two years after you left the Smithsonian. So I'm curious how, what it was like to oversee the creation of a museum for, for starters, but also one of such magnitude and such historic significance. It was, a, it was weighed on me. Uh, you know, when I took that job, as I took the job at Georgia Tech, I made a list of four or five things. I said, if I don't do these things, I'll be a failure. And that museum was on my list. And when I went there, uh, they had a site, fortunately, that was hard to do on the mm-hmm. mall. Right, anyway. finding a place to put it. Uh, they had a wonderful director in Lonnie Bunch who just became the secretary of the Smithsonian. But they didn't have a big staff. Uh, they didn't have any fundraising capability, and they had no collections. There were, obviously were African-American artifacts right. and African-American art in the Smithsonian American Art Museum and, and other places, but there were no collections specifically for that. I museum. see, okay. For, for the story it wanted to tell. Well, I want to go back to your point that if you didn't do these things, you would have been a failure. So is that how is that your motivator? Is that how you set yourself up? I've got to do this, and if I don't? Those are the things that I try to, it's like baseball players, you know, keeping your eye on the ball, that these are the things you've got to watch all the time. You can't let them slip away, even in conditions where you're, you know, difficult conditions and things aren't going well or you're traveling. You always have to come back to those things, and you have to say, how are we doing? How are we doing? How are we doing? So Lonnie and I talk a lot about that. And I was, uh, you know, it had an emotional thing for me because if you look back in my family history, some of my family owned slaves. And Lonnie's family were slaves. And so there were two people of completely different background who both were committed to seeing this story being told. And if you look through history, the LeContes, they were lived on a rice plantation. That's where they grew up on the coast. Their family uh, enslaved people there. They did. So as we look back through American history and you are looking at articles that are representing, demonstrating American history, 
of course, there are a number of different ways to look at it, right? It is, the, so, so it's all about the filter that you use. Well, and of course, we, that, that's the thing I think that's important, and I try to document in the book, is that we have to look back at history in, in, in its fullness. We have to recognize we did some things that we probably regret or do regret today. Uh, but we have to look them in the face. They are part of the story. And I think this book is a, a way of telling the story. So you look it in the face and you say, this is how we got to where we are today. And we aren't proud of all of it. Some of it we are. And, you know, this country, as somebody said, is the only one, only country that has a national anthem ends in a question mark. Hmm. Is the flag still there? And we're a work in progress. And we're still learning to be who we want to be as Americans. How about the concern that you initially had going into this project for this book that there's not a lot of South Georgia that merits inclusion at the uh, Smithsonian Collections? Why did you think that? Well, you know, I've certainly, I'm, I'm a student of history. I love history. And I knew even the Civil War kind of missed South Georgia. There weren't any battles down there to speak of. Uh, of course, just a march through march there. March to the sea uh, is the exception. Uh, and but the, the, and, George, and you know Douglas was only created in 1858, so it was a relatively recently created little town. So I was kind of concerned. I said, you know, a lot of if you talk about Revolutionary War, Douglas doesn't come up. It doesn't exist yet. So that part was my concern. What I didn't appreciate was the natural history part which is a rich, rich history that goes back thousands and thousands of years. Well, let's get to that in our next segment. My guest is Wayne Clough, former secretary of the Smithsonian and president emeritus of Georgia Tech. We're speaking about his life, his work, and his new memoir, Things New and Strange. We'll be back with more of On Second Thought. Stay with us. We're back with On Second Thought from GPP. I'm Virginia Prescott, and I'm speaking with Wayne Clough, former secretary of the Smithsonian, president emeritus of Georgia Tech, and now author of a new memoir, Things New and Strange, A Southerner's Journey Through the Smithsonian Collections. Clough grew up in Douglas, Georgia, and used the museum's vast repositories of artifacts to learn more about his childhood home. So what was it like for you returning as an adult to South Georgia with all this history behind you, having run, uh, you know, overseen Georgia Tech and the Smithsonian? It was an emotional thing for me. And I felt, first of all, I owed something to where I grew up. I I hadn't done as much as I thought I could uh, for the place. And I wanted to do something to tell the rest of the world how special it was. Because when I left, I didn't think it was special. And over time, you stay away from your home, you realize it's very special. And I wanted to share that feeling uh, with people. Uh, and, and I said, I'm the only person likely ever from Douglas, Georgia, who will be secretary of the Smithsonian. And now's my chance to tie two places that I love, South Georgia and the Smithsonian, together. Well, I would love to talk about some of the natural history that you mentioned. In the reptile collections, you found specimens of snakes, alligators, turtles, tortoises. When you visited South Georgia in 2014, you had an encounter with eastern indigo snakes, which are bred at the National Zoo because it's an endangered species. What did you learn about them and your family's connection to them? <laughs> well, the, the, the day started, uh, that particular day, was, a, was on a personal journey. I wanted to see the site of my grandfather's old farm, which I'd never seen and was lost uh, financially. And the family had to disperse fundamentally. My dad had to leave home. 
And I think that's the reason he never took me there. I think it was something that was painful to him. Mm. They had probably a beautiful childhood there and living out in, next to the Okmoga River uh, and then losing that farm. And so I wanted to, I wanted to see it. And my friend Frankie Snow and, and uh, a friend of his got into the tax records of the counties there and figured out where it was. And so I was ostensibly going to see this farm. So we come up to the end of this paved road. Now you're on a dirt road. And he says, this is it. There's 8,000 acres on either side. Uh, this is where the farm is. And I noticed a sign, and it said the Division of Wildlife Resources here in Georgia. And it said, this is protected territory for endangered species. And I thought, hmm, what does that mean? So it turns out it's eastern indigo snake and a gopher tortoise. And they are in danger because they are they are they're symbiotic species with the longleaf pine, which has been cut down uh, largely in the state of Georgia. And so because of loss of habitat. And the indigo snake is, is a beautiful snake. It's not poisonous. It's the biggest native snake. Some of these snakes that have come over from Thailand are bigger. Hmm. But it's the biggest native snake, and it's not poisonous. And it's a it's beautiful color. And that's one of the reasons it also was endangered. People would collect them because of their beauty. Uh, so we went out on the farm, and a gentleman named Dirk Stevenson, who works for the Orient Society, and they're working to restore indigo snakes to see that they still exist. And he, he knows how to find them, and he found a beautiful indigo snake and brought it out and handed it to me. And he explained they're not poisonous, but I, I'm not I'm not a real good at handling snakes, and so I... I I tended to hold it pretty far away from my body, as you can see in the photograph. Uh, yes, there is a photograph of you <laughs> holding this at what looks like a, yeah. a safe distance. But the peculiar thing was, I asked him, when was the last time he was at the Smithsonian? He said, I haven't been a long time. He said, but two of your people were down here recently. Hmm. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, because the Smithsonian is interested in trying to participate in the endangered species program in breeding these indigo snakes. I had no idea the Smithsonian did the kind of programming. It's a part of the National Zoo. Mm-hmm. And they have a very huge endangered species program that works around our pandas, uh, one of the more obvious in red, and, and the giant pandas are, are one. But Chevalsky's horses and many other Cree species that are under stress, the Smithsonian has helped restore the numbers of those species. Somebody had told me that the Smithsonian had indigo snakes. And I never made the connection at all with actually that farm. And so suddenly, I was standing on a farm that I'd never seen before, holding a snake, realizing that two of these snakes from that place were now at the Smithsonian. Uh-huh. And I had not seen them. And so the first thing I did when I got back was go out to see them. <laughs> and they're doing well. You also looked into the geology collection, which includes some meteorites that landed in yes. South Georgia. What did you learn about the meteorites that meteorites that hit the earth here? Well, that was another one of those things where you walk into a collection and somebody says, I think we have something here from South Georgia, right? Most people know, okay, there's a shooting star. There's something connected to meteorites. I knew that much. And, a, and Carrie Corrigan, who's one of those great curators at the Smithsonian, took it on to herself to educate me about meteorites. And so I learned about the different types of meteorites. And I learned that in South Georgia, as defined in my book, there are nine official meteorites. Mm-hmm. And two of them are relatively near Douglas, one in Enigma, Georgia, and one in Pitts, Georgia. That The one in Enigma... That meteorite was a found meteorite. That is, nobody saw it come out of the sky. They just bumped into it out in the field. 
The one in Pitts was a was a really is a, a, a spectacular meteorite. It was a superstar because it flew over South Georgia. Everybody saw it, and and it had a sonic boom and all these things, and it landed in this obscure little town called Pitts, mm-hmm. Georgia, and so uh, it, and it's a famous meteorite. Uh, it's a really scientists all over the world know about it because a heavy nickel iron meteorite with beautiful when you cut it open beautiful patterns and all these things so it's a very special meteorite well you actually spoke to one of them 102 year old osco bennett who recalled seeing the meteorite but it's it's a wonderful story of you going to talk with him because he doesn't get right to the point (laughs) well osco doesn't get visited by too many people and his fortunately his son uh son-in-law were there and then he helped uh uh, and he would try to get him back on track because Oscar wanted to tell me the stories of 102 years of life. <laughs> and that was in 1921, in April of 1921. And Oscar was playing marbles. He was outside, and this is important, at nine in the morning, and he heard something. And he looked up and he saw this black smoke. And the meteorite had gone over his head. Amazing. He didn't hear the bang because there's a, there's a delay, the sonic effect. Oh. So it's traveling so fast that the sonic boom doesn't catch up to it till later. And so he told me that. And I thought, well, how could he hear it two minutes later? And then I later read in the literature, that's what you do. Two minutes. But it was sunny. That's important. And it was coming at a very sharp, very low angle because it landed not far from his house. But he actually saw it. The nice thing about that was, again, it's the people, right? It's not just the story of the meteorite, which is interesting unto itself, but it's the people. Well, that another thing that you looked into is the Gullah Geechee culture studied by Lorenzo Dow Turner, born in North Carolina, but traveled to Georgia and South Carolina Sea Islands to record yes. the Gullah language and wrote a seminal book, Africanisms in the Gullah Dialect. His research ex- accepted as having founded the basic concept for right. understanding Creole languages. Right. Turner Collections in the Smithsonian. Tell us more about him. Well, the collections are in the Anacostia Community Museum, which hardly anyone ever goes to see because it's out in uh, almost in Maryland. And it was designed to show how a community museum could serve the purposes of a small, uh, smaller township. And it has its own collections, not big ones, but it turns out that Lorenzo Thomas's wife admired that museum, and she gave part of his holdings when he passed to that museum. And so they have uh, the amazing story. Of course, people thought that he was barking up the wrong truth, for you want to use that term, because they thought that language really wasn't a language. And he started recording these uh, speakers with this huge recording device that weighed over 100 pounds and with aluminum discs. And he recorded in Harris Neck, Georgia, and all these places, Sapelo Island, uh-huh. and recorded hundreds of people speaking and singing. Uh, in, to him. And eventually, with those recordings, when he went to Paris to the World's Fair, he heard people from the, the western side, windward side of Africa saying much the same thing. And he realized that that's where they came from. It's an amazing story. And of course, the, the, the Geechee people, as we call them in Georgia, the folks in Georgia, uh, were fundamentally isolated because they were resistant to malaria and yellow fever. So in the summer, the plantation owners would leave, and they were there themselves with the overseers, and that was about it. And so they're, but they also came from one part of Africa, so they brought that culture with them. And after the Civil War, they were freed, but left behind, and all those plantations were burned down by Sherman's troops. Mm. So they had nothing, and the culture just continued to evolve and grow into this beautiful thing that we have today in, for Georgia. 
My guest is Wayne Clough, former secretary of the Smithsonian, president emeritus of Georgia Tech, and we're talking about his new memoir, Things New and Strange, where he looks at his life and connection to South Georgia through the lens of the collection of artifacts at the Smithsonian Museum. There are also Jimmy Carter artifacts you mentioned at the, earlier in the show. What kind of artifacts told you the story of Jimmy Carter at the Smithsonian? Well, uh, it, it dawned on me after working, working, working this book, you know, starting 15,000 years and working my way back, I had to quit somewhere. <laughs> and I really felt the book was uh, ending with the story of how South Georgia gradually came out from under the shadow of the Civil War and the, the, what followed after the Reconstruction and, and the Jim Crow laws, all those things that held them down for so long. And I saw the effects of that as a child when I would go out into the country and see tenant farmers, black and white, uh, who basically had very little in their life, very little education. That was, a, that was an artifact, if you will, of that period of time. And I really wanted to get to the point to say, well, what pulled us out of that and, and end it at that point in time? And Jimmy Carter basically was born in 1924, I believe, and my parents were born in 1902. So they lived in that environment that was no electricity on their homes, and it was largely a rural agricultural society and segregated, of course. So his experience mirrored my experience. His, his book about his childhood reads almost like the early part of my book. And I realized that, first of all, you have to have something in the Smithsonian about the collections, right? That mm -hmm. has to relate to it. And I said, if anybody has something in the collections, it's Jimmy Carter. Mm -hmm. First of all, he has to have a portrait. And as I dug around, of course, I found 50, 60, 70 things right. about uh, President Carter. And right, because was, you have the portrait gallery. You have all sorts of different places you oh, can absolutely. go. absolutely. And people don't realize that there are many portraits. They have lots of photographs and sculptures and all of these things that you might call as portraiture. But in addition, he's a man of wide-ranging interest, and so he shows up in a lot of places. For example, the bird collection. Mm -hmm. He's a big birder. I had no idea. Yeah, and so when they had the Year of the Birds in 2016, they asked him to do a blog, which he did, and he talked about knowing bird songs and identifying birds from their song and how beautiful that is and how tenuous it is that we, if we have to be careful not to lose that. Uh, so, uh, but what I didn't know, these other things, that uh, was always a surprise. <laughs> uh, when he was president, of course, he put solar panels on top of the, the White House to heat the water. They were very efficient, but that was about all they did. And so the question was, where did they go? Well, they were summarily removed by the Reagan administration, exactly. I understand. And they ended up at a university in the, uh, Maine for mm -hmm. some odd reason. But believe it or not, two years ago, the Smithsonian got one of those panels. And so we have in the Smithsonian collection one of uh, President Carter's solar panels. And that ties into his love of the environment. And, of course, that drove part of my book is his love of South Georgia, his love of the Native American culture, drove a lot of the things that he did as a president. He created more parkland than anyone other than, than Teddy Roosevelt mm. uh, in Alaska, the big Alaska Wild Lands Act and Wild, 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 Wild Acts. And uh, his story is just so rich in regard to the environment and his love for the environment. It added enormously to that part of the book. Well, there, that's one thing that comes up in the book a lot is that the disappearance of species, like bird species, right. you know, in the last 250 years, those that have disappeared. I'm not talking about the 15,000-year-ago giant sloth, <laughs> but about the changes. Yeah. Uh, yet, you talked about, you know, tenant farmers, uh, unsustainable life or very difficult, hard life in rural Georgia. 
There's still so much difficulty and so much poverty in many pockets of Georgia, not just in South Georgia. So if you're looking at the connection that you have, your life, your, you know, global outreach, your much bigger vision of the world, your access to the world, what do you think is holding South Georgia back? Well, I think um, people, the, the Europeans who came here didn't appreciate the special nature of South Georgia and, for example, cut down the longleaf pines in abundance. And not just Georgia, it was in South Carolina and other states as well, those uh, states that have lands that are coastal plain land. And when they did that, we didn't realize how nature's interconnected. And so you had species that were dependent on the longleaf pine, like the indigo snake, indigo for tortoise. And those uh, species themselves became endangered. And so we lost a lot of our natural history by being careless about it and not understanding what we were doing to that environment. Today, we know we can save some of it. We're not going to have a national park in South Georgia, but people are beginning to save the species. I noticed the loggerhead turtle article today about really successful restoration of uh, numbers of of loggerhead turtles. The wild turkey was almost extinct Mm -hmm. in South Georgia when I grew up in Jimmy Carter. And, of course, he he just fell while he was getting ready to go turkey hunting. Uh, But wild turkeys were almost never seen. But that was an example where hunters and farmers and, and environmentalists got together, working together, and decided this is a species we want to say. Bears, black bears were almost gone. White-tailed deer were almost gone. So a lot of these animals, were, and alligators, of course, were almost gone. Uh, if you put your mind to it, you can save those parts of nature so the generations that follow us can see these amazing creatures. Mm-hmm. I think of your description of Lorenzo Dow Turner, you know, lugging his big recording machine out to capture something, this piece of history that was disappearing. And the Smithsonian collections being augmented or founded in some cases by what people who were just interested brought forward. You, it strikes me, are one of those people, you know, who is out in the world looking at the wonder of the place. What do we owe to those collectors, those people who hold things, objects, with meaning? We're very lucky. If Lorenzo Dow Turner hadn't done his work, there's a good chance we would not know anything about the Geechee culture. It's so unique to Georgia, and it underlies so much of our music and our art, and we would have lost that. We would have lost that connection. We would be missing our basically our heritage. You know, The cover of the book is, is a specimen collected by Roland Harper, and uh, I got a call from the head of the botany collection, the 1.2 million specimen, and he said, I've got something for you, because he knew I love longleaf pines. And so I walk in there, and there's a longleaf pine specimen, those beautiful needles laid out in a spectacular display. And I looked, and it was collected in Douglas, Georgia, in February of 1903. I said, who did that? <laughs> and it was this guy, Roland Harper, who turns out to be a story unto himself. He turns out to be one of the greatest botanists to ever live in the Southeast. And what he was doing in Douglas, Georgia, well, he's working on his thesis for Columbia University. So if he hadn't collected these things, we wouldn't know about them today. We, we, would, we would have lost it. So in some, what did you learn about your birthplace in South Georgia through the, of this project? I learned a lot, and, and I learned to appreciate it much more deeply. Uh, I realized how it was, I was humbling to realize how little I knew about it. And, and it's scary because I thought I knew something about it. And I knew so little. So it was a joy for me to experience this opportunity and 
to share, be able to share it in this book. And, and that's really the purpose is to let other people realize what a very special place South Georgia is. Well, thank you for sharing your 150,000-year history with us, <laughs> Dr. Clough. Thank you very much. Appreciate being here. Wayne Clough, former secretary of the Smithsonian, president emeritus of Georgia T- Institute of Technology, born in Douglas, Georgia, and returns to his South Georgia roots in his new book, Things New and Strange, a Southerner's Journey Through the Smithsonian Collections. You can find more on the book, including an illustration of that beautiful long-leaf pine needles that he mentioned at gpbnews.org.